one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 507 for the week of Monday, February 18th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey there, Sawyer. How's it going? It looks like we're back to the uh, Space Debris Podcast here tonight. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, we have to welcome as well Mark Ratterman. Hello from over here to you over there. Hello right back to you. It's amazing how we can cover such a long distance in a short period of time. Thank you, technology. If only technology could have warned us of our first story, because we have a lot to talk about in the world of space debris. But it's not necessarily the kind of debris that we regularly talk about on this show, such as satellites and pieces of rockets. No, we're talking about actual space rocks. And if you have any connection to the world, you've probably heard about the giant meteor that occurred on Friday. In case you missed it, a giant meteor blasted over Russia on Friday, which is the biggest in more than 100 years. It occurred in the Urals Mountain region, which its main area, the city they're calling, is Chelyabinsk. And that is, again, in Siberia, out in Russia. Now, many dash cams happened to catch... This bright object streaking across the sky, becoming brighter than it seemed like the sun at some points, and multiple pieces were noticed as breaking apart as well. On top of that came large sonic booms, which in turn shattered glass. And those shattered windows and glass injured at least a thousand people. NASA officials are reporting and using estimates now to figure out what they have. Scientists are currently estimating that the small asteroid, as they're calling it, was about 17 meters or 55 feet in diameter and had a mass of about 10,000 tons. And the estimated energy unleashed was about 500 kilotons, which, to put that into perspective, was about more than 30 times the blast yield of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So this thing was big, powerful, bright, fast, and took no mercy. At this time, there are reports of possible meteorites being found, including possibly one that hit a lake, but none of that is completely confirmed yet, as data, even days later, is still coming in. And all this is up-to-date information as of today's recording date, Monday, February 18th. This was crazy, huh? Yeah, and I I saw the story initially uh about maybe 6.30 in the morning on, on Friday. And, uh, you know, I mean, the energy that this thing had coming in was just absolutely remarkable. I mean, first off, it came in to the atmosphere at about 40,000 miles an hour. And this, this bolide essentially went ahead and exploded uh, some 12 to 15 miles above the Earth's surface. Uh, this all also coming from NASA. So you can... And, and just picture this, though, gang, a... 500 kiloton blast occurring about 12 miles above the Earth's surface. Yeah, you're going to see all, you're going to feel all kinds of things. And and I again, the reports coming out of uh, uh, out of the area in the Urals, um, it uh, uh, most of the the damage to people were, was due to flying glass and so on. But I mean, from what I understand, too, so it knocked out a um, a zinc factory somewhere in that area in fact it it actually caused a little bit of a blip on the on the uh 
on the commodities market with put zinc due to the value of zinc and so on. It made that fluctuate too. But um, I, I also saw reports coming down here too that about maybe fifty pieces of this thing had actually been been located and and Russian scientists were actually starting to look at this thing. Uh, there's a, a one of the pictures of that. Uh, sorry, you mentioned of that lake that's sitting out there and that huge hole that's sitting there in the ice, uh, where they think the the main part of the debris sort of landed. Uh, but I'm just picturing that, just just picturing the, these folks, you know, going about their daily routine, um, you know, in their cars and autom- automobiles. And most of the the video that was taken was taken from from an automobile, and uh, uh, just watching this thing sort of unfold and thinking, you know, what would you be thinking as you were sitting there in your automobile watching this? Uh, you know, my first thought would would be like, you know, wouldn't be a meteor. It would be, you know, are we under attack? Um, and it, it, it kind of sort of begs the question, too, um, that we have to kind of sort of understand this more and more. Um, as, you know, most of the most of our listeners know here, too, this isn't the first time that this area here um, had uh, had been <laughs> the subject of a of a meteor strike. There was a, an event back in 1908, um, almost in the in the uh, in Tunguska, where a piece of a comet, uh, a comet called NK, was sort of you know, sort of entered the atmosphere and did sort of the same, similar to the same thing here, um, caused a. Um, you know, a, you know, constituent blast and so on that sort of mimicked a, a nuclear bomb going off. Um, and uh, if I remember exactly, in in one of the uh, the Cosmos episodes, uh, Dr. Carl Sagan himself sort of postulated that uh, uh, it would be good to understand these things because you know y- you've got something that mimics a nuclear explosion and it really isn't. You know, there's no subsequent radiation. So it'd be kind of interesting, you know, something like this happens and explodes over over the, uh, um, you know, over over the skies and and starts, you know, theoretically starts a nuclear war. So, um, or at least you know, back then that was the big scare. So, um, it, it, it's good to understand these things a little bit more and good to to keep track of these things. There, I've also been noticing too, Sawyer. There's been a lot of chatter out there. Um, to try to go ahead and 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 keep better track of of what's happening up there, more space situational awareness, that type of thing. Ironically, too, this happened around the same time that the United Nations was convening to discuss this very topic of near Earth asteroids and so on, and how to go ahead and and deal with the deal, deal with it. And lo and behold, um, as they are are trying to get uh, you know a consensus on what to do about this stuff we have a demonstration of what happens I, I think too uh, you know I and and this was something I had fired out I guess it was about 6:30 in the morning uh, because I was trying to tie uh, in two uh, two uh, things that we're going to talk talk about in the next segment um, both of these by the way you know the, the asteroid that we're going to be talking about in the next segment and this are totally unrelated the debris that came crashing down on us at 40,000 miles an hour had nothing to do with the passing passing asteroid. But, um, you know, we had that incident happen. We had this this incident happen. And the only, the only, the first thing that popped in my head was maybe Mother Nature is trying to tell us something. You know, they're trying, maybe Mother Nature is trying to tell humanity, hey, how's your space program coming along? Um, are, are, are all your eggs still in one basket? You know, are... Uh, are you uh, still trying to figure out what to do to protect yourself? Just a little bit of a, just a little bit of a warning shot across the bow here. I'm still waiting for you. And uh, one of these days, I just hope that uh, you know we do get a consensus and we do get a plan out there to to deal with um, you know a, a near Earth asteroid or something like this that uh, you know we might be able to do something with or might it, this I don't think he can go ahead and do anything about since the the object was coming in at about 40, you know, 400, was it about 40,000 miles an hour? But at least you might be able to give the, the town an early warning and saying, you've, you're, you've got a problem. So, um, you know, just things to do to go ahead and try to protect ourselves. And I don't think we're, we're there yet. I don't think we're, we're, we're taking, you know, 
I don't think we're taking it too seriously. I mean, there there are groups out there, you know, and again, we've had folks on this program uh, talking about this this very topic. Uh, we've had um, you know form, uh, former astronaut uh, Rusty Schweikert, who runs the uh, B. 612 Foundation, which is going after these things, they actually have a project on the boards called the uh, the Sentinel Mission, which is out to try to demonstrate how to how to find these things and how to keep track of track of near Earth asteroids. But that's only one effort. There's a few others out there. Uh, we've talked about the problem of you know man-made space debris on this on this program a couple of times. But uh, I don't know if we're, we're really taking the prob- problem seriously. There was a lot of Bruce Willis-type jokes out there, too. And, and um, I don't know. And I'm, I, I, we really have to, have to look deep down inside ourselves here and, and, uh, and take this problem, problem seriously. Because obviously now it's injured people. It's caused you know, property damage. And uh, you know, it's, it, I'll bet you the folks over in that small town up in the Ural Mountains are taking you know meteorite warnings and meteor warnings very very seriously, um, especially after after this incident. And, you know you've gotten a little bit of a bloody nose from one of these things, and it's like, well, okay, this this isn't science fiction anymore. So I hope I hope uh, I hope we take uh, we take note and and keep serious about this stuff. Yeah, that was a lot of information in there, and a lot of stuff that I want to comment on. Uh... <laughs> Again, going back to the zinc factory, I mean, it's crazy how this can affect everything from things like the market. And, I mean, the, this was so powerful, it even registered on a seismograph. I mean, this thing coming in itself was so powerful that it registered as an earthquake at first on some of the scales. It's crazy. And, you know, you're right, this is scary. Our lack of ability to predict some of this, but... Then again, when you think about it, I mean, we have thousands of pieces of debris enter and burn up in our atmosphere every day. This isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't something that's a rare occurrence of things entering our atmosphere and burning up. I mean, why else would we have meteor showers throughout the year? That's essentially what that is. That's those pieces burning up in the sky and just not actually landing on the ground and causing mass chaos and calamity and breaking windows and everything that came along with this. The rarity is the ones that come down. And in fact, that area of Russia, pretty much, in Siberia, that's been hit seven times within the last hundred or so years. So with some pretty big ones, too. We're not talking tiny ones. Although this one so far is being registered, scientists are saying, as the largest of the events that have occurred in Russia relating to this. This one has been the largest. Yes, it's great that we need to be able to track this. We need to be able to keep an eye on it. But there's nothing we can do. This happens. That's why we have an atmosphere. Sometimes the piece is too big for the atmosphere, and so it goes boom. Just be glad that we have Jupiter and other things and that so that our surface doesn't look like the surface of the moon. So I think, you know, these occasional strikes every now and then are terrible. It's, again, like you said, a wake-up call, and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted out the image that, you know, this is kind of a wake-up call from Mother Nature saying, hey, how's your space program going? And we need these. But there's no way to say, you know, they're not going to happen. And and just, yeah, just for the just for the record, uh, I, I I fired that out long before he did. Um, <laughs> the um, it actually came from from a little little poster that uh, a friend of mine that I noticed that I I forget this this was on Facebook. A friend of mine, uh, Aaron Beisner, had posted on. Uh, on uh, on Facebook, it was basically saying that asteroids. You know, the, talking about our next story, asteroids are basically um, nature's way of asking us how our our space program is going. And this was prior to that uh, to that incident. And that little poster just really, really, you know, it was said tongue in cheek, but it, it really, really drove the point home that um, you know, all right, fine, we're we're getting this little close shave, but. Also, you have much more spectacular incidences like the one we had in, in Russia that I think speak louder than, uh, than any kind of, uh, you know, than anything. And uh, that's just a demonstration, uh, folks, because that, 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 ex- that nuclear detonation, well, it really wasn't a nuclear detonation, but that thing exploded with the force of about 500, uh, you know, 
you know, at, what 500 kilotons, uh, 12 miles above the above the surface. Just picture if that was just a little bit more closer to the to the surface of the Earth, and uh, just picture what the damage might have been. So, food for thought, guys. Exactly. I mean, this is a scary event, and I would not want to have been, as you mentioned, one of the people there, not knowing what it was at first, but. Thank goodness that most people in Russia have dashboard cams, and we got great video and, and the audios of the sonic booms and everything, and that nobody was killed as well. Amen to that. I mean, I, again, sir, the, you got a lot of people dealing with a lot of damage and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of heartache and all that, and that's what, I, I'm real, that's what I think a lot of people are missing from this whole thing. Yeah, the whole thing was fantastic. I had one gentleman saying, wow, look at that explosion, that was cool, and all that. Yeah, it's cool, but you had real people affected by this. At first, you know, the numbers were coming in, it was about 500 people, then it got up to 900 people, then it got up to about, you know, uh, you know, 1,100, and I'm like, oh, geez, how bad is this? And, I mean, these, these were really people, real people that got really hurt by this. And, you know, they've got real property damage over here. This isn't science fiction here, guys. This is the real deal. So these guys have to go, these poor guys over in, in, in Russia have to go ahead and pick up their lives again. It's just, I mean, going through another natural disaster like we did here, Sawyer, on the uh, on the East Coast with Sandy. Not, you know, just no more than, uh, you know, what, not even, nine, you know, four months ago. So um, my all my best to them, seriously. Now, one of the big questions that people had when this first happened was, was this related to the asteroid? But what asteroid are we talking about? Well, that moves us on to our next story. And you can tell that this asteroid story is going to be our entire first round here of news. What we're talking about is an asteroid that was scheduled to make a close approach to Earth on Friday as well. And that was asteroid 2012 DA-14. Boy, they come up with such clever names. And it made a very close approach to Earth, and many were worried that it was going to come within the range of our satellites and possibly knock out some of them. Did it? Gene? Uh, no. Uh, the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, when they were doing their live program, um, about I guess it was about maybe 2 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern Standard Time, Eastern Standard Time here on Friday or last Friday, um, the uh, there was no ask, there was no uh, uh, satellite in the path of uh, of this uh, of this asteroid. However, it did encroach on that region of space where a lot of our asteroids are are kind of floating around and, and working hard for us. So uh, that was a concern as this thing came through, but. Uh, um, it was a relatively uh, a relatively close shave on on this, and a lot of uh, a lot of our cameras, a lot of our eyes in the sky, so to speak, were attuned to uh, DA14, which makes me kind of wonder: um, were a lot of these things fixed on the uh, DA14 that we missed? Um, we missed that bolide coming in. Um, from uh, uh, you know, from uh, in, in, into Russia, so I, I kind of wonder about that one. You know, where, where it was was that the real reason why we missed it? Why we missed this? And this once again comes back to that idea of waking us up about our space program. Is that there are plenty more of these, and the important thing is the year twenty twelve in the name is when it was found. Oh, don't go there. <laughs> Oh, don't go there! It's early I'm 2013. Just, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just. Oh, please! Uh, I'm just, I am just so happy that none of this happened in December of 2012. I really am. <laughs> oh, good lord! It would, would have, would have sent everybody off into the loony bin there. This thing, by the way, was just only about 17,100 miles miles above our heads as this thing crossed over. And this is one of the those asteroids, though, that we know about. That's fairly well documented. That um, we know when the next approach is going to be, uh, and um, according to uh, uh, NASA, uh, an asteroid like this flies pretty fairly close to us on average, only about once every 40 years. Um, the next time around, however, this uh, DA-14 is going to go ahead and 
uh, wreak havoc on us, I believe, is um, uh, around 2046, again around February. Um, But then it's not going to come within, it's only going to come within about a million miles or so, um, or about maybe, you know, four times out from, uh, you know, further out uh, than the moon is from us. So um, if you missed DA-14 this time around and, and you're young enough to, to hang around with us by 2046, then you've got another shot. But uh, bear in mind, I think this, this was your best opportunity to see it. Um, I think the next one, Sawyer, that's, that's going to be a, a real big problem is one that we have discussed here before. Um, the one asteroid, the one asteroid, uh, uh, it, um, another one um, that is going to be coming in around uh, in April in 2029 on uh, April 13. Um, it's it's also going to cross cross the the the, the uh, geostationary satellite satellite area, but it's it's on the, it's going to be about 19,400 miles out and won't break the won't break the record that DA-14 set. But Sawyer, as I said again, uh, this is a wake-up call. And uh, there are, you know, the UN is, is, is looking seriously at, at trying to figure out what to do in the, these instances and how do we go ahead of, and, and correct these problems. Uh, a gentleman that's been on the show uh, once before, uh, Dr. Tom Jones, former shuttle astronaut, is uh, part of the... Uh, the uh, B612 Foundation, which was also, I believe, set up by Rusty Schweikert, Apollo 9 astronaut, uh, and uh, those two uh, gentlemen are, are trying to go ahead and, and figure out a way to to uh, to keep track of all the 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 natural debris that's up there that's coming at us, and and also figure out ways of uh, asteroid deflection. So again, you know, this is this these two incidents happening on the same day. We're really the alarm clock, and uh, you know, going off for us. And uh, this was the reality check for us, I think. So, um, Mother Nature is asking how that space program is coming along, and you know, if our eggs are still in all in one basket. And uh, you know, right now we have to say yes. Hopefully, in the not too distant future, and hopefully I live to see it, uh, that won't be the case. But um, um, we'll just have to. Hope that uh, we uh, um, we hear this 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 wake up call. Uh, I'm not too sure that we have though. I mean, the, the you know to interject a little bit of politics into this conversation. We had the State of the Union address here in the United States uh, last week, last Tuesday, and there was virtually no mention of uh, of the the uh, of the NASA budget or or NASA activities going forward and. Uh, even with uh, uh, the uh, infamous Mohawk guy sitting in, uh, sitting near the uh, the first lady there, um, we really didn't have a mention at all. So I'm wondering too if we're really really waking up here. So we'll see. Exactly, and you know what's going to happen every single time one of these comes around. Is it going to hit the Earth and destroy humanity? You know what the answer is. We don't know. We need more research. So if you ever had a reason to fund NASA, there you go. Yeah, and, and there has to be some sort of systematic search program to put in. One thing, though, that I'll, just as an aside on this whole whole meteor slash asteroid story, um, uh, just a, a Twitter incident that happened uh, while I was, I was getting ready for the program over the weekend. I was doing my homework and posting some more. If anybody you know, follows, follows my Twitter feed, um, I usually post out a lot of stories and and post a lot, uh, you know, basically everything I'm I'm doing homework on for the show here um, is posted on my Twitter feed. And uh, uh, one gentleman was trying to uh, uh, post the theory that a missile actually shot the asteroid down before. Um, before it did damage, and that there is actually some sort of clandestine, you know, asteroid deflection system up there already. And I was like, uh, "Sir, no, not that I'm aware of. That's one and two. 
I think he ventured to that, you know, there's a eye in, you know, a, a benevolent alien eye in the sky going ahead trying to shoot, shoot, you know, shoot down wayward asteroids for us. And I'm like, um, sir, no, <laughs> I don't think that's the case. And uh, he promptly unfollowed me after that. But that was I just thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> but um uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so the, the the crazies are out of the woodwork on this too, and they will be for some time. But uh, again, we've got to take this 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 threat from Mother Nature seriously now, and and I hope I hope we yield her call at this point. Right, and don't forget the incident on CNN where the uh, the anchor asked Bill Nye if global warming causes asteroids. Oh, I saw that, and I was like, oh, did he really just say that? And at that moment, I just felt so bad for Bill Nye, and I was like, "Oh, um, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm gonna, okay, folks, I'm gonna be biased here. Forgive me here, but you know, where's Miles O'Brien when you need him back on CNN? <laughs> I'm sorry." Yeah, so the exact quote from the anchor was. Talk about something else that's falling from the sky that is an asteroid. What's coming our way? Is this an effect of perhaps global warming, or is this just a meteoric occasion? Well, guess what? It's science. Ugh. <laughs> Bill Nye handled it with class and pretty much ignored it, but still painful. That's Bill Nye, though. You can't beat the bow tie. Nope. <laughs> All right. So with that, we have come to a crashing conclusion of our first round of stories, which I think rocked. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. God. But now we can gracefully pass by the orbit of Earth and move on to our second round of stories. And I promise I will stop with the terrible puns for now. I will begin our second round of stories, and this is going to be an update on a couple of failures. And the first one that we will talk about was the Proton Rocket. If you might recall, there was a launch back in December with a Proton Rocket, which everything went well up until the very end, which the Breeze M upper stage had a failure, and the satellite was then lost. Well, apparently engineers have found the cause, and the cause is on the Breeze M upper stage. It was a bearing that was damaged from overheated propellant ingested into the Breeze M main engine, according to a statement from International Launch Services and an article on Spaceflight Now. The propellant is a combination of hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide, and uh, it was supposed to fire four times to get the Russian communication satellite into its correct orbit, but shut down before the fourth burn. So they found the cause. They are planning on fixing this. Engineers are saying they have no plans whatsoever to change the engine stage, but they're going to hopefully improve it, and they are hoping to once again resume launches on March 26th. Oh boy, yeah, that's a that's a big deal. Um, the Russians have not been having a whole lot of luck lately uh, with the with not just the proton rocket, but a few other other you know incidences as well. And it'll be good to to get uh, for them to get that uh, that behind them and hopefully get their uh, basically get their space mojo back, for lack of a better phrase. Um, it, it means a lot for them, but it also means a lot for the International Space Station that these boosters function well. I mean, some of these boosters are used for, you know, the progress modules. Obviously, you've got the Soyuz booster launching the uh, the, uh, the Soyuz rocket, launching the Soyuz uh, spacecraft itself. But uh, you've got these other smaller, uh, you know, boosters you know, dealing with uh, dealing with progress and and a few other. Other things as well, I and mean, this is also a linchpin in their satellite launching business as well. So uh, it, it's it's not good that um, uh, all of this stuff is happening. But uh, they uh, hopefully they've got a good handle on it, and hopefully they'll be ready to to go at that again and and get Proton moving again. Yeah, you're not kidding. And Russia's not had the greatest of success as you were mentioning. I don't know if you recall, but we sort of jinxed it right after the shuttle program when we were saying that 
Well, at this point, you know, we're stuck with Russia, and they're claiming the era of reliability. Since then, how many failures has Russia had? Not to put any specific blame on any one organization or part, but, I mean, I think we jinxed them. Well, they jinxed themselves. I mean, uh, with all due respect, uh, if I recall, Atlantis's APUs were not even cold yet. When they when when on the it, 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 at first when this report came through, I, I thought it was actually on the um, uh, you know one of the, the the Russian news services. No, no, no. This was right on RKA's website, and and they were they were touting that this is now the era of reliability, the era of Soyuz, and all this. And I'm like, you know, and I believe I said that said this on on this program here. You, you don't count their, your chickens before they hatch. It's one of the reasons why airlines don't tout their safety records because one, you know, one in-flight accident and it's, you know, pretty much in the soup. So, um, you know, I, I thought it was foolhardy to do, it, to do it then. And lo and behold, they've had a string of just absolute bad luck. So, uh, you know, let it be a lesson to you listening out there, boys and girls. Do not go ahead and and be boastful because something's going to come back around and and hit you across the head and and you're going to have to go ahead and pick up the pieces from that point forward and that's what I think they're doing here they're trying to go ahead and essentially pick up the pieces I mean this is, has affected the ISS in some respects it's affected um, you know crew transfer because the Russians are the only um, partner right now that can launch human beings to the ISS so keeping these boosters healthy is you know, smart, but it's also beneficial for the for all of the ISS partners right now. So uh, again, keeping fingers crossed, and hopefully they've they've got the magic button that'll go ahead, and and they've they've figured out the magic incantation to make all this work, and and hopefully this will uh, this will work. Well, hopefully this is the era of reliability still, and that the launch in March goes well, and that. That's the end of the launch failures for Russia for a while. And thankfully as well, they've all been on the unmanned missions. Well, that's not the end of the failure stories. And uh, on top of Russia with their Proton rocket, also Sea Launch has had some problems. Sea Launch, they had a Zenit 3SL rocket, which lifted off on February 1st flew off course, and fell into the Pacific Ocean moments later. That was the Intelsat 27 communication satellite launch, and it was as well destroyed. So they've had that failure, but the company's saying, eh, that's no big deal, we're going to keep going, we've got this, you know, nothing to worry about. Well, on top of that, they're also being sued by Boeing. And they, Boeing, by the way, was at one point a minority shareholder and is also the builder of the company's payload fairings. So, not looking so good for them, but they're saying they're going to be fine. And I have a feeling I know why, and I have a feeling you know why, too. Yeah, you know, when, when this whole thing happened a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, I, I, I read the article, and I, I kind of loved the attitude. It was sort of like, nothing to see here, move away, you know. And Sea uh, Launch is a is a company that ran into some some issues a while back. They almost uh, actually almost went out of business. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the Russian uh, space agency essentially picked them up. Uh, so they are pretty much fully funded now, but they are are serving under the the umbrella of the Russian space agency, who essentially owns them. Um, and uh, uh, they will get their act together uh, because, again, they you know they've got the the, the full faith and and credit of the Russian government backing them up. But uh, uh, not surprised about uh, Boeing uh, suing them over the payload. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I, I have to check with some of my 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 legal folks and and to see if they've got uh, they've got cases and and what have you. But I'm I'm not really surprised that uh, that. Uh, Boeing is suing over the loss of the satellite. And, oh, it should be interesting. I'll have to watch the case and see if they actually win. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, this is a huge impact because they are currently, according to an article from Spaceflight Now, they're currently number three in the global commercial communications satellite market. So losing them would be huge. Oh, yeah. 
But I mean, then again, lately you've got like the Arian Five, which has been doing great, and they have a busy launch schedule this year. So I don't know. Do you think that they'll still have a big future, or that they may drop down from number three? Or what do you think? What do I think? Uh, I think the competition out there is going to be fierce. I mean, it's not just Arian that's out there. I mean, Arian uh, Space is is looking at Arian Six now. Um, it, there's going to be a, we've got a lot of new faces out there on that field. Uh, a lot of old stalwarts too, but we've got a lot of new agile faces out there, including you know space exploration technologies. Don't count them out. Um, Falcon Nine is 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 got uh, uh, you know has has got uh, you know is is going to build up a pretty good reputation, I think. I hope going forward. Um, so much so too that the uh, U.S. military is kind of also considering Falcon for. Uh, uh, for some launches as well, um, uh, you know. So the competition out there is going to be stiff, um, it, but I guess it all really depends too on on cost, on how reliable your launch services are, and also on uh, what orbital inclination you want to fire from. And if Sea Launch could go ahead and 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 tout that. We can launch from this latitude and this, you know, this latitude and longitude that that you know we can custom tweak your your uh, your orbit the way you want it. You know, um, that's going to be a selling point. So we'll just have to see. Um, will they survive? Probably, cause, since they've got the back, you know, full backing of the the Russian government. But if Russia just decides this isn't going to work, they could pull the plug at any time. Right, and I have a feeling that some of the other companies are going to be taking big advantage of this, going, hey, you wanted to launch with Sea Launch? Why don't you come launch with us? We have more reliability. So this opens up a whole new uh, slot in the market, I think. And As much as this might be somewhat of a negative for Sea Launch, I think this will be a positive for the satellite launching industry as a whole. Yeah, agreed, Sawyer. I no, no complaints there. Alrighty then, so I'm done with failed launches, but we're still going to stick with launches in some form. Gene? Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. Uh, over the weekend, uh, Florida Today had a very interesting article on the progress of the 21st Century Ground Support Program that NASA's undertaking um, and, uh, and what it's been doing and what it's been up to. The whole goal of that is to upgrade the facilities at the Kennedy Space Center, but also to allow multi-operational uh, abilities there, meaning you could go ahead and have commercial operations and NASA operations working side by side. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, uh, firearms that I had the honor of uh, visiting on a tour back in uh, November of, uh, of uh, 2011 um, was converted over to support several launches all at once, meaning you could theoretically have, um, you know, a launch facility out at, uh, you know, out at 39A or 39B, and this room could be also supporting something at Launch Complex 41, and so on and so forth. So, this one room could be reconfigured, and it, you know, at a at a at a moment's notice to support several launches at at once. Um, that's just one. That's just one uh, aspect of this whole thing. Well, there was an the, the article essentially said too that uh, a lot of what's going on at the vehicle assembly building and so on is exclusive upgrades to support the space launch system or the or SLS. Um, the problem there is that it just seemed to uh, the author of that particular article that. Uh, the SLS upgrades were getting um, were getting the uh, the uh, the focus, and the commercial aspects of this were not getting focus enough. Uh, and the argument in the article was saying that, uh, um, okay, fine, you're going to have commercial and NASA sort of using the the same facilities, you know, in tandem, uh, and that's the whole purpose of of doing this entire refit. But if not enough, you know, not enough uh, resources are going to the commercial aspects of this, and all of the resources are going to the S SLS, can both commercial and um, and NASA sort of sort of peacefully coexist at, at KSC? Um, 
mean, X-Core, I don't think, would have a problem because um, the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle is not going to be using the uh, the uh, uh, the old shuttle uh, landing facility. Um, X-Core would be out there doing their suborbital stuff if, if they so wanted. And, of course, that would probably be uh, a landing strip, too, for uh, Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser. Uh, so those two wouldn't have a, I don't think, would really be bumping heads unless their operations kind of kind of occurred simultaneously. Um, but the idea, too, is that a lot of the resources, again, seem to be going toward SLS. And this is also kind of forcing a lot of the commercial entities to say, all right, is KSC really, really the future for us? I know that uh, space exploration technologies or SpaceX is taking a look at um, uh, building its own facility over in Brownsville, Texas. Um, And uh, Mark Whittington uh, wrote an article as well, sort of mulling mulling over the same things um, uh, out for Yahoo News. And his solution uh, in a – and not only his solution – um, but also a an op-ed that he is uh, citing in the Wall Street Journal is to go ahead and simply cancel the space launch system and either you know forego the plans to explore deep space with the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle or uh, you know downsize uh, the abilities at KSC so this way they can accommodate all of the commercial folks plus some NASA operations. Um, or just go ahead and uh, basically turn the whole thing over and configure the, the Kennedy Space Center to just deal with commercial operations. So you go ahead and you keep a lot of the space industry that you currently have at the Kennedy Space Center, but you're letting the dream of essentially interplanetary uh, exploration by humans uh, die. Um because now you don't have a spaceport to launch them from, so I I, I don't know. I think that's that, that's uh, that's kind of a drastic solution. I think um, can all the players sort of peacefully coexist in one area without driving each other crazy? Um, I think it's possible. Uh, I kind of disagree with uh, Mr. Winnington here that that you know. A lot of these things, you know, that, that the only solution is to let go of the SLS and to keep going here. You have to remember, too, though, that the vehicle assembly building, even though it's being renovated, it's going to be it's going to be renovated for the guys that own it, which is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. They're going to go ahead and renovate it for their 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 program, which is the space launch system. It doesn't necessarily have to go ahead and you know, fit in with a lot of the, the commercial stuff because I don't know, the vehicle assembly building I think will be pretty much devoted to, to SLS once it, it gets moving. Um, the old, the other, you know, shuttle uh, garages or orbiter processing facilities, those are still up for grabs. Uh, I know, um, I believe it's Boeing CST-100 that's already kind of sort of taking over OPF-3 um, and they will essentially be the fabrication area for uh, the CST-100 once once that gets moving. And uh, there are other entities looking at the other two o- OPFs for for possible for possible use. But um, you know, again, I, I think I don't know what what you guys think. Um, but can you know? I'll 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 you know pose the odd couple question here. Do you think that both commercial and government agencies can go ahead and peacefully coexist at one launch center without driving each other crazy? I think personally the answer is yes, but I'll throw that to the floor. Honestly, at this point, I'm wondering if NASA pretty much set themselves up for this. Because, I mean, that's what it seems like at this point, that this was going to happen eventually. Well, this is what happens when you try to be all things to all people. And, and, you know, you have to, you have to remember too what you want to do out there. I mean, we still don't know what, I, I remember asking the question at, uh, and this was back in November of uh, 2011. I remember asking the question about, um, uh, launch complex 39A 
do we have a plan for that yet? Is is that still on in in the mix somewhere along the line? The last time I remember is that 39A is still going to be kept in what is called shuttle ready status, and and there was a uh, another complaint on um, on Florida today too about that one, um, saying that the money to to keep that going was a little bit steep, which you know I I, I tend to differ. I thought it was a little bit the way the um, the way the article put it. I thought was a little little too simplistic, but. Um, uh, the um, they there is right now as far as I know there is no plan for thirty nine a, um, and uh, I don't know whether whether or not I know SpaceX has made some sort of plan to possibly use it for Falcon Heavy. Um, I don't know if they would be using the vehicle assembly building for Falcon Heavy. Uh, SpaceX has a tendency to 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 build things horizontally and. and Kind of lift them, whereas we kind of, you know, NASA has been building things vertically um, and then towing them out. So I don't know if if um, if this is, you know, even if if the vehicle assembly building is going to to be part of you know the SpaceX mix or not, because just of the way they do business. But um, uh, it, it, again, they're they're they're, they're I, I personally think again that we can indeed. Have commercial and NASA living on the same same uh, area and doing it in tandem and and not stepping all over each other. I mean, we've got we've got operations out there now. Um, that uh, I mean, the Air Force has got operations out there. Um, they do their own thing, um, and uh, I mean, it's 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 still an extraordinarily busy spaceport over there. Um, I mean, we've had shuttle launch. You know, we've had. Opportunities where we've had shuttle launches and Air Force operations sort of going on at the same time. So, um, can they can they work things out? Yeah, I think they can. Um, can you know both commercial and you know government use a building that's set up for the construction of one rocket? Maybe. Um, the good thing that I understand the interior of the vehicle assembly building was that it was also built very in a very flexible manner. So there's there's possibilities there, but I don't know if commercial is eyeing the vehicle assembly building for use or not. Uh, I know, I but I do know it's going to be the focus once once the space launch system starts uh, starts you know getting constructed. Well, only time will tell if this becomes a family feud or not. And if it does become one, I suggest Steve Harvey be the host because he's great. <laughs> nice one. So with that, we now move on to Mark with his next story. Mark, what do you have for us? Let's momentarily go back to 2012, October, the SpaceX launch CRS-1 at Kennedy Space Center. And the NASA social with the attendees treated as media. One of the people that I met there is a gentleman named David Bankston. David, you can find on Twitter under the handle of Travels Dave, T-R-A-V-E-L-S-D-A-V-E. And Dave Travels is a video-type series of stories that he does on just general travels here, there, and everywhere. His video covered a wide range of NASA's history as well as the SpaceX launch. And I think you'll find this an interesting video to watch. And also the fact that it came from one of the NASA social attendees. We'll have the link in the show notes, and I think you'll enjoy it. I'm going to do another quick one here. And this is not going to have any links, but I think you can find it pretty easily. And with all the hoopla, in the U.S. anyway, over Valentine's Day a week or so ago, we're going to talk momentarily about attraction. Except in this case... Not attraction between people, but the attraction of the magnetic fields. So here's your Google homework for as much time as you can spare. Because if you're like me, you're going to dive into this site and you're going to get lost for varying amounts of time to where you'll wonder, gee, it got dark. What happened? So what I want you to Google is NHMFL. 
and that's an acronym for the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory, NHMFL. And if you go to the website that that's right at the top of the Google search results, it's called magnet.fsu.edu. The MagLab is all about magnetics research in the United States. They have more world records that have come about at that facility. But first, let me tell you how I got there in the first place. I just stumbled across it as a event that was going on uh, about two hours away from here in Tallahassee, Florida. They have an annual open house. And lo and behold, this past Saturday was their open house, and I decided at spur of the moment to go over there. And it, one of the things that I think you'll find interesting on their website, there are different tabs. One is a tab tagged education at the top of the screen. And there's a selection under education called MagLab U. And it's just what you think, a place to learn about the MagLab. They've also got a media tab and a take a look in particular there for their multimedia library and, vi and videos. And you'll find more than one varying length videos that are absolutely fascinating. The reason I'm promoting this is that as I walked in this, it's some on nearly 300,000 square feet facility in multiple buildings and all of these phenomenal world record magnets that they've built there. And the place has only been in existence since the early 90s. This was a uh, facility that came about by a proposal from Florida State University that they wanted to create this model federal-state partnership to do magnet-related research. And, and this is the part that I absolutely did not expect. They're doing magnet-related research in nearly all areas of science. They're looking at subjects such as physics, materials science, chemistry, biochemistry, biology, even biomedicine. And as I walked around that facility on Saturday, they had some 90 different science demonstrations that were going on simultaneously all through the MagLab. There were more than 250 scientists and engineers that were throughout the place. You would see a poster board up on a wall and somebody standing in front of it. And you'd stop and you'd look at the poster board and they would start to explain and talk about what was there. Well, I found out after the fact that the, the people that I remembered by face and some that I, that I caught their name, most of these people were professors, doctors in research, and this facility draws researchers from all over the world. And the reason I'm telling you all about this is not to get you excited about the different little things like the highest magnetic field for a continuous uh, continuous mag field, and this is a Guinness World Record, 45 Tesla. What's a Tesla, you say? 0. 0.00005 is the Earth's magnetic field. So the Earth is a fraction of a Tesla, a fraction of a fraction. And here they got a magnet with 45 Tesla. They got the highest field for a resistive magnet, the highest non-destructive magnetic field, the highest field for a split magnet, the highest homogeneity of any resistant resistive magnet, the world's largest bore size for a 900 megahertz NMR magnet. They can do MRIs of both small, live, anesthetized uh, subjects like rats and other small animals. They can do an MRI of these small little creatures. This world record bore size for this magnet that they can do an MRI is, uh, I think it's 10 centimeters so we're talking small, but that small gives them incredible resolution that doesn't even come close at the facilities that we think of when we think of MRIs in hospitals. What I want to really want to point out here is that this is something in my backyard, and it turns out that they have a collaboration with University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, and every day when I go to work, I'm going to Gainesville to go to work. So there's a mag, mag lab facility at Gainesville. There's a MagLab facility at Tallahassee, and then there's Los Alamos National Labs. That's where the third facility is that's part of their organization. But here's something in my backyard that had an open house, and they do it only once a year, but they have tour groups going through with school kids. Probably every week there's school groups that are going through there. And so this is a place that's paid for by your tax dollars 
that literally rolls out the red carpet to people to come see what they're doing. And the most amazing thing was that I wasn't talking to somebody that was there for briefing. I was talking to the professors. I was talking to the research people that know this stuff inside and out. And they did that phenomenal job of translating it into regular talk and, and you know, common, here's Mark Ratterman, doesn't know a thing about this stuff, language that I could understand. And uh, it's in my backyard. I encourage you to check around to various educational facilities, uh, national-type facilities that you know of. Look around. Find out what's going on. Call them and say, hey, do you have an open house? Because the five hours that they had set aside from 10 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, gee whiz, they could have made that like a theme park and given you eight hours and a three-day pass, and it wouldn't have been enough to really see and to dive into this thing. It was kind of like getting your feet wet, and it got me interested in what's going on. National High Magnetic Field Laboratory. Take a look at it. You'll find lots of cool stuff. Hey, Mark, that uh, I, I smell a, 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 a uh, tweet-up or social somewhere in the offing if somebody's smart over there. Um, it would be kind of fun to do that. Uh, it would be really, really cool. You want to know one of these days we ought to, ought to see if we can get somebody from the facility on here to kind of talk about a little bit about how their facility ties in with, with, uh, with any type of, uh, you know, astrophysics or any kind of, uh, you know, space flight type stuff. It'd be an interesting discussion, I think. Also, given the fact too, that, um, uh, I believe AMS uh, may have some new. The Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer might have some news for us. Speaking of magnets, uh, in the coming uh, weeks or so, uh, I believe the first findings from AMS two are supposed to be published in about two weeks. There was an article uh, just going to air tonight. You know, before we went to air tonight. So, uh, be interesting to see if they could talk to us a little bit more about what they do over there. It'd be kind of fun. Good observation, and uh, interesting that there's news coming out that you just mentioned. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, same here. I mean, you, you and I, Mark, have been following AMS for, for some time, so it would be, you know, and, and I've been sort of chomping on the bit trying to see if, uh, uh, you know, what the, what, what the next news uh, on that project is coming, and uh, I'm, I'm most eager to see this. And, of course, links to all that will be in the show notes. And, Mark, thank you for always giving us something interesting to read in those show notes. Amen. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I know we only took two trips, but boy, that first one rocked our world, so. <laughs> Why did I see that coming? I don't know. It kept us busy, and now we're going to be busy picking up all the fragments off the ground of all the <laughs> of everything that went on with this episode. But in the meantime, we've got to pick up our fragments and end this episode. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us. Thank you for joining us, G. McCulka. Hey, sir. Thanks. And uh, two things. One, um, I had a, a grand old time again. I want to give these guys a real quick plug. Uh, the Aviation Extended uh, podcast uh, had me on for some odd reason. Uh, they were doing a space exploration, uh, space travel uh, type uh, show. They usually deal with aircraft, but uh, they had uh, Emma Lloyd from the uh, UK Space Agency and author Andrew Smith, uh, author of Moondust, um, on and uh, I played cleanup. So uh, if anybody's interested in seeing that, that is at aviation extended ex. No, I'm sorry, aviation extended x t e n d e d dot uk dot co dot uk. I'm sorry, um, but uh, go ahead and, and check that out, or just Google extended aviation extended and uh, and take a listen. And the other thing, too, um, as we record this, it is Monday, February 18th. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and embarrass uh, my dear colleague here, Sawyer Rosenstein. Happy birthday to you, sir. How did I know that was coming? Thank <laughs> you, Gene. The crowd goes wild. Hey. <sighs> yes, I can hear every single person in our audience singing happy birthday to me. And why do I have a feeling I'm actually now going to get tweets or emails with happy birthday in it with musical notes before and after? Oh, yes. Dear, uh, dear old Shannon Moore. God, I love that woman. And I'm not even going to announce my age. <laughs> and let's continue on. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. 
It's been a fun night. Thanks, everybody. It's been fun. It's been crazy. It's been forgetful. It's been loopy. It's been everything that you will never hear because we edited most of it out. But I still think it was a great episode. And we hope that you will join us for our next one. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.